0: Chapter 3 The Mind Laundry Myth David's own assessment of his mental confusion after his Air Force experience was that he had not been brainwashed. By the time David had his mind controlled, brainwashing had become a catch-all phrase, but what David had suffered was a much more subtle and hideous form of tyranny. George E. Smith was a POW during the early days of Vietnam War. Unlike David, George did not have a good education. It can even be said that he has a little naive and therefore a good candidate for brainwashing of both the American and the NLF, Viet Cong varieties. He was one of the first Green Berets captured in Vietnam in 1963. It was the practice of the US Army in those days to indoctrinate its men with poorly constructed lies which it would hoped Promoted them to fight a war in which the U.S. had that dubious legal business and little more of an argument. The credibility gap existed not only within the confines of the U.S. borders, but also in the far flung fields of battle, all the way in Southeast Asia. If brainwashing is making a person believe in lies, then our troops were already brainwashed by their own government. It was a simple job for the Viet Cong to gain the POW's cooperation by telling the truth, truth which was easily documented. Smith described the attitude which was instilled in American soldiers by their military indoctrination. We were arrogant. The army is a separate society. It has its own hierarchy and I could rise to a stratum in the army that I couldn't attain in the outside world. They'd driven arrogance into us in the Airborne, which is a high level in the Army, but Special Forces was the highest level you could reach, the elite of the elite. Elitism was the philosophy they taught at Bragg. You are professors of warfare. You shouldn't fight unless attacked. It costs thousands of dollars to train one of you and you're too valuable to send into battle. I believed it. I believed everything the Army said. I never questioned anything they told me until I got to Vietnam, and then things didn't quite fit anymore. Smith and three other men were captured in a midnight raid which followed a heavy mortar bombardment of their location. The Viet Cong took them deep into the jungles. When they reached the VC compound, they were forced to build their own prison out of bamboo. Then, after the primitive compound was completed and the POWs had settled in, the interrogations began. These were nothing like smith had been led to expect they were friendly chats with an interpreter smith called the man with glasses every day he would tell us his prisoners about their history of vietnam and the u.s rule in that country it was right out of the movie smith said the prisoner was confronted by his interrogators who were sitting on a higher level and making him look up at them look at you man with glasses began you are pitiful It was a typical brainwashing tactic designed to make the prisoners think poorly of himself, to undermine his self-esteem. Sergeant Smith, like many others, already had poor self-esteem long before he was captured, even before he enlisted in the Army. That esteem wasn't enhanced by any finding that authorities to whom he had been so obedient had misinformed him. We had known interrogation was inevitable and had feared it for so long. But it didn't go that way it was supposed to. The guards were off somewhere out of sight. No one shone lights in our eyes. In fact, I sat in the shade while the provocateurs, one of them interrogated, served my tea and candy and cigarettes. The man with the glasses did most of the talking, though he encouraged me to say anything I wanted to. He insisted on giving me their side of the story. Why they were there in the jungle and why the NLF had gotten together and was fighting the U.S. and the Saigon regime. We are fighting for Vietnam. We do not try to take over your country. This is not in our plans. We are worried about our country. We love it very much. We are proud people and we want to keep our country. Didn't I know I was wrong to be part of the United States effort in Vietnam? And if I did, would I write a statement saying so? He talked to me for about an hour and at the end of the session he gave me a pack of Cambodian cigarettes. For your enjoyment, take them with you. When you are resting and smoking, I would like you to think deeply of what we've discussed. If sitting in the shade drinking tea while I listened to this old guy talk was brainwashing, then it didn't fit any description I had ever heard. I recall the stories I heard about Korea, the scene where they hypnotize you or drop water on your head, or put you in a complete stillness, something will drive you out of your mind. Then, once they've taken everything from your mind, they start over again. When somebody says brainwashing, this is what I consider they're talking about, the classic Korean example, or the stories that came out of there anyway. The word brainwashing summoned a terrifying image, but like so many other words, it became a corrupt in its usage. It was applied to describe situations in which propaganda or influence were used. Indeed, the word may have been corrupt from the very beginning when it was coined by a CIA propaganda specialist, Edward Hunter. In his book, brainwashing in Red China, he claimed, brainwashing with the even more sinister brain changing in reverse is the terrifying new communist strategy to conquer the free world by destroying its mind. In the words of the noted Yale psychiatric professor Robert J. Lifton, brainwashing was properly held to be an all-powerful, irresistible, unfathomable, and magical method of achieving total control over the human mind. It was, in fact, none of these things. Techniques which seemed to change beliefs of Americans, POWs, and others behind the Iron Curtain employed no hypnosis, no drugs, no methods for the control of the mind, and certainly nothing magical. Hunter revised brainwashing in Red China and reissued it in 1971 and the introduction of the updated edition he continued his attack on the communists much as he does in his psychological warfare journal tactics change the word china to cuba and this book is a description of communist warfare against the mind brainwashing in cuba as well as in china this is the world pattern the communists employ what might in military parlance be called mind attack it is the new dimension in warfare added to artillery attack naval attack, rear and frontal attack, air attack, brainwashing's dual process of softening up and indoctrination have been added to the arsenal of warfare girding the Trojan horse in 20th century accountments. Though Hunter may have been correct about the communist use of coercive psychological techniques on its own populations, he never once hinted that the U.S. government might be just establishing practice and employing similar techniques of its own. In 1958, in his testimony before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, he continued to present brainwashing as a communist weapon. Since man began, he tried to influence other men or women to his way of thinking. There have always been these forms of pressure to change attitudes. We discovered in the past 30 years a technique to influence by clinical, hospital procedures, the thinking process of human beings. Brainwashing is formed out of a set of different elements, hunger, fatigue, tenseness, threats, violence, and in more intense cases where the Reds have specialists available on their brainwashing panels, drugs and hypnotism. No one of these elements alone can be regarded as brainwashing, any more than an apple can be called apple pie. Other ingredients have to be added, and a cooking process gone through, so it is in brainwashing with indoctrination or atrocities, or any other single ingredient. Given the anti-communist climate of the Cold War years, Hunter's zeal did not even excessive, although few of his conclusions were supported by the eyewitness accounts given by the repatriated POWs. According to them, no drugs or hypnosis were used overseas. They told only persuasion techniques. Hunter's brainwashing in red China was widely quoted through the front-page news stories the American public became aware of for the first time that governments though only communist ones were mentioned, could control people's thoughts and motivate them against their will and without their knowledge. Two years later, in May of 1960, Francis Gary Powers was shot down over the Soviet Union and cries of brainwashing again made U.S. headlines. At his public trial in Moscow, Powers apologized to the Russian people for doing them wrong. Even though the CIA had told him that if caught, he couldn't admit anything the voices of the soldiers within the U.S. were quick to brand him a traitor. Those who were inclined to be more sympathetic, said he had simply been brainwashed. One psychiatrist, William Jennings Bryan, who had been the head of an Air Force medical survival training program which employed hypnosis to prepare pilots for resistance to brainwashing, went so far as to coin a term for the subtle new technique which he thought the Soviets had developed since the Korean conflict and used on powers. The U-2 pilot, Brian said, had been powerized. Brian said that power's apologetic manner during the Moscow trial, his submissive, almost crippled words of testimony, his trance-like acceptance, all showed an amazing personality change since his capture, Dr. Brian said. The pilot's apparent lack of real emotion during the Moscow trial was the most startling evidence that the Russian brainwashing through hypnosis has destroyed the normal aggressive confidence and the cockiness characteristics of Air Force flyers. The big tip-off came when Powers apologized for his American assignment, testifying he knew he was wrong and said he felt no ill will toward his country's Cold War enemy. It is no longer a secret that Russia uses hypnosis as a powerful instrument to destroy the resistance of individuals she wishes to conquer. Brainwashing hypnosis, as apparently used on Powers, is vastly different from the permissive type of medical hypnosis and the self-hypnosis used by Air Force flyers in caring for themselves after a crash. Powers exhibited no telltale marks of physical abuse or torture during the Moscow trial, and indeed, he may have even thought of himself that he was being treated rather well. But his manner and personality were obviously so unlike the typical American pilot that only a brand new type of other powerful technique could have changed his personality in so short a time. Francis Gary Powers would return to the U.S. in 1962 in a trade for Russian spy Rudolf Abel. He wrote in his book, Operation Overflight, a book withheld from publication by the CIA until 1970, that the tactic he decided upon when captured was in accordance with the CIA instructions, he said, when questions, I would tell the truth. Powers insisted that he did not tell the Russians anything which he thought they didn't already know. In fact, he often agreed things they suggested simply to mislead them. As for sophisticated powerizing techniques, Powers denied their existence. He even went so far as to suggest that the Russians were actually highly overrated in their intelligence gathering methods. From what I had been taught about brainwashing, I had anticipated certain things. I would be lectured about communism, given only propaganda to read. Food would be doled out on a reward-punishment basis. If I cooperated, I'd be fed, if I didn't, I wouldn't. Interrogation would be at uh, odd hours, under bright lights. No sooner would I fall asleep than I would be awakened, and it would start all over again, until eventually I lost track of time, place, identity and I would be tortured and beaten until finally I would beg for a privilege of being allowed to confess to any crime they desired. None of this happened. Somewhere along the line, the CIA's covert action staff lost eight of the value of using the truth as the main weapon. Taken over from OSS, they soon became experts in the big lie. This policy service the attention of the American people during isolated events, such as the U-2 incident and the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, when Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy took the blame for what were their obviously CIA lies. In the light of recent history, it would appear that these chiefs of state were somehow convinced that it was better to issue a false confession that they had lied to the nation than to admit they had been lied to by their own intelligence agency. In the years since the founding of the CIA in 1947, there have been hundreds of such lies, false denials, and domestic propaganda campaigns which have not immediately gained public attention. Since the administration of Lyndon Johnson, the executive branch of government seemed to be following Machiavellian advice. If you don't get caught, it can't be wrong. Executive privilege the legacy of the National Security Act, the art of falsehood and lies have left our history strewn with the rubble of undisclosed cover-ups and stone walls. The administration of Nixon, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton have all lied, not because they were misled by the cryptocracy, but more importantly because they were a part of it. If they hadn't been, they probably would have been, been elected. Few seem to notice that George Bush was an intelligent agent before he appointed director of CIA. That was before he was elected Vice President of the United States, during which time his hand articulated a mentally impaired puppet named Reagan, a movie actor playing president. Through Bush, the cryptocracy had its hands directly on the helm of the state for 12 highly visible years. Brainwashing, as planted in the press, is one of little propaganda weapon in a vast arsenal, but is a weapon that has remained effective against communism, Cropping up in the news accounts whenever it is needed, whenever the Cold Warriors' domestic covert action arm think that the public is going to soft on communism Albert K. Bilderman, a senior research associate at Rand Corporation's subcontractor, the Bureau of Social Science Research, conducted a study of the news items published about our P.A.W.s in Korea. Bitterman's analysis confirmed that this kind of propaganda was successfully dominant in the press during and after the Korean War. During the war, propaganda focused on prisoner atrocities. When the war had ended, the focus shifted to stories involving brainwashing of POWs. Beginning with exchanges of prisoners, he wrote, prisoner misconduct received gradually increased attention until several months after the war. It became an overshadow to other themes. Throughout the Korean conflict, propaganda and counter-propaganda campaigns on both sides grew in intensity until eventually POWs became the most critical issue of the war, the stumbling block and the drawn-out truce talks that delayed the war's termination. In 1953, some 4,000 surviving American POWs became the subject of another type of propaganda, propaganda by Americans about Americans directed at Americans. According to Bitterman, The theme of this propaganda was that there had been wholesale collaboration by the American prisoners with their communist captors and this was unprecedented behavior revealed alarming new weaknesses in our national character. This post-truce propaganda was an outgrowth of propaganda activities during the war. Desperately trying to believe that U.S. propaganda was motivated by good intentions, Bitterman suggested that the brainwashing thing was pushed at home because the Cold Warriors were apparently worried about the number of American prisoners would return espousing the communist view, Bitterman said. The Defense and State Department and the Central Intelligence issued a stream of press statements during these days prior to the first prisoner exchanges in Korea to prepare the public for the shock of finding that many of the POWs had been brainwashed. The theme of these releases was that evidence of communist indoctrination or pro-communist beliefs and attitudes and to accept contrasting regimented ideas. And the public let it be known that it would not vote for a brainwashed presidential candidate. Romney's popularity fell so dramatically in the polls that he eventually dropped out of the race for the presidency. The word brainwashing proved to be more charged with emotions than anyone had supposed. In one of the first mass market books published on the subject following the Army's release of the set of the Korean PRWs, Eugene Kincaid wrote, Unfortunately, the distinctions between brainwashing and indoctrination is far from clear to the average American. The Army defines indoctrination as an effort to change a man's viewpoint while he is still a thinking individual by regulating his thoughts and actions. This falls short of the effect produced upon some defendants seen in communist courts, defendants who had obviously been completely broken and had ceased to be thinking individuals. I'm afraid that the general conception has been that communist techniques of manipulating human beings are so persuasive, so completely irresistible that no prisoner can keep his integrity in the face of them. And by analogy, that no people, including ours, can stand against such an enemy. This is what distresses me so much about the popular and improper use of the word like brainwashing. Perhaps, but by 1967, when George Romney claimed that had been brainwashed, our own government was already far beyond what Kincaid referred to as brainwashing. The United States government did not have to stoop to the low and exhausting process the Chinese and Russians used. In the age of electronic brain stimulation, neuropsychology neuro and advanced methods of behavior modification hypnosis, the government certainly didn't have to resort to methods of unsophisticated as brainwashing. The techniques of mind control developed even by 1967, which were making brainwashing seem like the metaphor it was. A washboard and scrub bucket technique that had little to do and little use in the world were the sonic cleaner with high-frequency sound, higher than the human ear can hear, Vibrates the dirt from the very molecules of matter or the mind. Brainwashing was largely a campaign waged in the United States home press. It served as a sharp edged propaganda weapon and was aimed at the American people to add to the already considerable fear of the communists. It's also covered official United States embarrassment over a seeming rash of defections and collaborations with the enemy, and perhaps most important, offered moral justification for immoral, illegal experiments to scientists working under a government contract. They were urged, as a matter of patriotism, to beat the communists in the mind control race. It is doubtful that all the collaborators in the Korean conflict succumbed to brainwashing. The eyewitness testimony of Air Force Colonel Laird Gutterson, one of the few heroes of the Vietnam War and a real hero of the mind control war, would suggest that they didn't. Gutterson, who had been in charge of the Air Force seminar on Korean brainwashing at Maxwell Air Force Base. An expert hypnotist, he later used self-hypnosis to block pain and keep himself alive in North Vietnam POW camp where he spent more than 27 months in solitary confinement. He took the time during his campaign for the US Congress to offer me his views on brainwashing and mind control. As early as 1956, Colonel Gutterson realized that what we call brainwashing was nothing more than psychological indoctrination. Controlling the mind is one thing, but remember, this does not occur with psychological indoctrination, nor does it occur normally with hypnosis. The concept of complete and total mind control was projected by the brainwashing myth, and it was the theme of the book The Manchurian Candidate but mind control is not what happened to the Korean or Vietnamese POWs. What the Chinese, the Russian, the Vietnams did was mind influence, not mind control. Gutterson said that while he was generally believed that brainwashing was the result of drugs and hypnosis, to first hand knowledge from the Korean conflict to Vietnam, there are no documented cases of drug or hypnosis induced mind control, Reading the examples of what the POW stated in both Korea and Vietnam, and what I saw in Hanoi, there are only men saying, I couldn't have done those things unless I'd been drugged. There are no specific reports of me, anyone saying, they stuck a needle into me and I did so and so. They gave me something to eat and then I did so and so. They were men who said I acted in a very strange way, just like I was in a dream or something. I must have been drugged. There was a cover-up for a snafu in some kind of the original Korean briefings on our combatants who, Gutterson said, were told to cooperate if captured. I remember a specific briefing, though later it was denied, where a group of us were told that we would be well advised if we got shot down to whip out a bottle of vodka and a red flag and start waving it. We were advised to cooperate in any possible way with the enemy because anybody back home would know that we were cooperating under duress. We were told that if we cooperated with our captors, it would not give them an excursion to torture us. That was a specific briefing given to us. Of course, now we know that a good number of our captive men followed that advice and did collaborate on the basis that, what the hell, nobody would be able to collaborate with the enemy again. The brainwashing word became commonplace after the Soviet Union presented evidence before the United Nations that changed the United States with the use of germ warfare in Korea, a major violation of the Geneva Convention. The Soviet evidence contained the confessions of several captured United States pilots stated both in documents and on film that had been dropped germ bombs on North Korea. By the time these men were repatriated, their stories had changed. Marine Corps Colonel Frank Schwabel was the first American to sign a germ warfare confession. His confession named names, cited missions, and described meetings and strategy conferences. Before a military court of inquiry, Schwabel said, I was never convinced in my own mind that we were the first Marine Air Wing had used drug warfare. I knew we hadn't, but the rest of it was so real to me. The conferences, the planes, and how they would go about their missions. The words were mine, but the thoughts were theirs. That is the hardest thing I have to explain. How a man can sit down and write something he knows is false, and yet to sense it, to feel it, to make it seem real. A CIA memo dated April 8, 1953, addressed to the chief of CIA's plans and preparations contained a report of an exchange that took place between the United Nations ambassador, Henry Cabot Lodge, and an unidentified CIA agent. The CIA agent began to brief Lodge on the germ warfare confessions of Schwabel and others when, according to the memo, Lodge interrupted expressing profound distaste for the entire matter, adding that he'd hoped he would never hear it again. It had been a nasty and difficult issue, principally because of the difficulty of explaining away the film and the statements of the American flyers. The CIA memo continued with the agent reporting. I said that we were fully shared this view, that the issue was finished in the United Nations, but that it had been our experience that the bug comes from a very hardy strain and exhibited appalling vitality. For this reason, I said that I thought it would be a mistake to be too complacent about the matter. To the last statement, Senator Lodge replied with a question as to just what explanations we could give of the statements of the American flyers. How do we account for this and what could be done about it? I said that our best guess was that the statements that had been in one way or another he Soviet and now Chinese techniques of brainwashing. Senator Lodge said that he thought the public was very inadequately informed about brainwashing, and that in the absence of a much larger quality of public information that now forced out the captive airmen and that one of the techniques we thought had possibly been used was twists on the subject the impact of the Flyer statements is terrific i replied by stating that we had shared his view and pointed out the department of defense is expected to issue a lengthy statement shortly thereafter the word brainwashing on the front page of every paper in America. We had not used German warfare, CIA propaganda claimed the communists had to use brainwashing. Author's note, the term mind control has come to replace the term brainwashing since this book was first published. It would appear that the majority of those who still use the word brainwashing to describe the effects of indoctrination, pain, drug hypnosis, programming, or any kind of interference in the subconscious of one person by another would be those who are of a reactionary lifestyle and mindset. I have noticed most recently that those who call themselves deprogrammers are often those who claim that those upon whom they work their techniques have been thoroughly brainwashed, usually by so-called cult that is supposedly not following the teachings of Christ. I would caution the reader to beware of those who betray themselves by their language and urge them to look elsewhere for professionals who might help friends or relatives who are the survivors of one or another government mind control program. Illustration Marine Colonel Frank Schwab, the first American to confess the U.S. was using germ warfare in Korea.